MSW Media. Hi, this is Will Forte, and you're, for some reason, listening to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. You made your choice. Well, pour yourself a glass, sit for a spill. It's time to have some fun. Let's do a little thinking, some picking and a drinking. But this is what we're drinking with Dan Dunn. Welcome, everybody. Great to have you on board. Coming up on this episode, a legendary spirits writer, one of my oldest, dearest friends in this business, Camper English, is going to be joining me. Camper's got a brand new book out called Doctors and Distillers, The Remarkable Medicinal History of Beer, Wine, Spirits, and Cocktails, and he is going to lay some serious knowledge on us today. I'll let you know I will be doing one of my regular appearances on the Adam Carolla Show on Thursday, August 4th. You can tune in, check me out, and be talking about cocktails to help get us through the hot dog days of summer. It's hot out there, folks, so you're going to want to check that out as well. I'm off to uh, New Orleans. By the time this episode posts, I will be in New Orleans at Tales of the Cocktail, which is the biggest cocktail festival in these united states i have not been there since 2018 covid played a big part in that but i'm excited to get down there and i'm going to be recording some stuff and you can uh, check that'll be on next week uh, a bunch of reports from tales so stay tuned for that uh, you might want to follow me at the imbiber on instagram and twitter i'll be posting pictures lots of videos and pictures from tales should be very exciting. We also have the podcast Instagram, which is WWD underscore podcast. People bitch me saying, I don't really post that much on there. Hey, what do you want from me? I'm putting a lot of stuff on the Imbiber, all right? Live with it. Deal with it. You talking to me? So, friends, it's been a good 20 years or so since the last time someone popped me good and hard in the face. Naturally, I was in a bar when it happened. Now, if I were the embellishing type, I might tell you there was a moment just before the knuckle met cheek when I had a profound realization about mankind's primitive instincts or the delicate dance between harmony and chaos in the universe. But as a responsible chronicler of adult beverages, I must cop to the fact that in the split second it takes for someone to deliver a knuckle sandwich, you don't think much of anything except maybe, ah, shit, or mommy. The whole thing just happens too fast. It's like a Taylor Swift romancer, the rise and fall of Tila Tequila. That said, I remember precisely what I was thinking in the instant before I got popped that last time. And it was, come on, Munchie, again? I knew him a long time, but I never got Munchie's real name. Never mentioned it. I never thought to ask. Munchie was one of those guys from the old neighborhood you instinctively didn't want to know too much about. What you couldn't help but know about Munchie, though, was he was a nasty drunk with a short fuse. A night with him almost always played like an episode of The Walking Dead. It'd start off pretty slow, midway through everything would go totally fucking bonkers, and at the end, a good chance someone you care about could die. Eventually, that someone turned out to be Munchie. 
Didn't happen in a bar, though. Way I heard it, he got killed during a home invasion. Poor guy. Who'd have thought a 74-year-old woman living alone would keep a loaded shotgun under her bed? Not Munchie. So the last time he popped me, we'd gone up to Queens to see our uh, beloved Phillies play the filthy, evil, dirty New York Mets. Phil's won. Afterwards, we stopped for a few at a bar near the stadium, where a few turned into a whole lot. So around about closing time, Munchie approaches this large group of, like, disagreeable-looking New York fans, with whom he shared his nuanced feelings about Dwight Gooden and the 86 Mets, which is when relations became, uh, shall we say, strained. So strained that in the ensuing brawl, Munchie mistook my face for a fist rest. Munchie was a bad drinking buddy, and I've had a few. Enough that I've developed a taxonomy, if you will. Munchie, for instance, was an M80. Once he got lit, a big explosion was inevitable. Now, there are 13 bad drinking buddy types. Would you like to hear them? Too bad. The M80. We've already covered this. Don't make me go all munchy on you people. But there is something I forgot to mention. Once an M80 gets lit, the goal, the only goal, is to get as far away as possible before it detonates. Unfortunately, you can't just manufacture a reason and flee. Most M80s are also stage 5 clingers, see? And that means they'll manufacture a reason to come with you. At this point, you have two options. There's the old Irish goodbye. That's a tough move in groups of four or less, unless you're a Murph, which I'll get to in a little bit. You want to use the you fly, I buy dodge, which should really be called I say you fly, I buy. Then while you're dealing with the bill, I disappear. Basically, you hand the guy a $20 bill. And while he's still angrily waving it at the bartender, you're in an Uber. Seems abrupt. But have faith that the coming explosion will wipe your transgression from the M80's memory entirely. He's going to have no clue you were there. In fact, you'll be the hero in the story he'll be telling the next day. As a bonus, you might even wake up with all your teeth intact. So I mentioned the Murph, right? So called for his mastery of the Irish goodbye. You've heard of the thousand-yard stare seen on battle-weary soldiers and child stars? You'll see it steal across the Murph's mug right around the 90-minute mark of any outing. Ten minutes later, it's, hey, did Murph? Yes. Yes, Murph did. Next up, we have the influencer. Albert Einstein and Niels Bohr famously argued over whether the moon existed if nobody was looking at it. Here's a thought experiment for the social error. If a night on the town occurs and no one shares every stupid fucking minute of it with strangers on their Insta-Snap tweet feast face feed, did it really happen? For the influencer, the answer is a resounding, I'm on Instagram Live right now, say hi. Look, social media already ruined democracy. Can we not let it ruin drinking too? Then there's the muskrat. Like most rodents, the muskrat is a prolific breeder. And once they get drunk, good luck getting them to stop talking about their goddamn kids. Seriously, there's nothing like making it through another week of soul-annihilating office drudgery without slitting your wrist, only to spend Friday night happy hour listening to some deranged carriage pusher high on diaper fumes, droning on about Caden's Mandarin studies teacher, and how it's so crazy how the twins body train themselves. Probably fucking geniuses. Super cute. Bartender, mind passing me that broken beer bottle? Ay, ay, ay. Then you got the mouse, the lovable lightweight who tries to keep up with the group, but ends up drinking way too much and picking fights with scary-looking dudes on the way home. 
Unlike his close relative, the M80, though, the mouse lacks much throw weight, thus requiring his friends, us, to bail him out. You heard of Mr. Fantastic? Oh yeah, Mr. Fantastic. Once this guy gets a couple pops in me, suddenly obsessed with how rich, handsome, and humble he is. Not unlike a certain Cheeto-colored public figure. Only that guy doesn't even drink. Riddle me that. And of course, there's one of the most notorious drinking buddies, Vince Neal. So we, so we should explain that, you know, we don't know if drinking was involved, but Vince has had a storied uh, life with alcohol. We and as a matter of fact, in Vegas. In Vegas, we, got, we actually had video, uh, this was three or four years ago, uh, at a valet where he was clearly intoxicated and demanding his keys. Stay away from that stuff, Vince. It's poison. Oh, wait, he was in Motley Crue. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, Balloon Man. It's the swell cat who magically inflates every bar tab by ordering the most expensive thing on the menu. Then when the bill comes, he magnanimously says, let's just split it. Woe betide those who befriend the Balloon Man, who's also a Murph. Then we got Miles. Miles is, of course, Curtis Armstrong's character from Risky Business, who persuades a young Tom Cruise to convert his parents' home into a whorehouse with a simple adage. Sometimes you gotta say, what the fuck? Okay, while this in and of itself is not terrible advice, Miles always pushes things too far, and he's adept at camouflaging terrible ideas as simple hijinks. Hey, let's flirt with those ladies in the VIP section who are talking to the Oakland Raiders. Hey, let's take a spin in that cop car idling outside the bar. Hey, I wonder what that bouncer would do if you gave him a wet willy. But the hands-down eeriest thing about Miles is how when you wake up in that holding cell in Fresno, that motherfucker's nowhere to be found. Consequences simply don't stick to him somehow, which is what sets him apart from the hey, watch this guy. This human exercise in intrepid stupidity used to only appear in parts of the country where second cousins are acceptable members of the dating pool. Then YouTube showed up. Suddenly, emotionally needy dimwits with access to booze and cell phones started channeling their inner Johnny Knoxvilles and filling out emergency room quotas. Hey, watch, this guy craves attention the way a lush craves whiskey. Problem is, he's also a lush who craves whiskey. Under no circumstances should an inebriated hey watch this guy be allowed anywhere near fireworks, firearms, fire sales, firewood, campfires, fire extinguishers, or your prize copy of Firefall's greatest hits on vinyl. Better yet, keep it simple. Keep him away from everything related to either fire or 70s soft rock. Other no-nos include balconies overlooking swimming pools, wedding dance floors, trampolines, sporting events, boats, zoos, amusement parks, and of course, Vince Neal. Hey, Decker, this is Vince Neal. Hey, I want to say uh, happy birthday, brother. Uh, this is actually from uh, uh, Christian, Mom, Ethan, and Blake. So uh, keep on rocking, shout the devil, and, uh, and do... Yeah, do some feel-good stuff in, full, in big old, big old four-row, you man. All right, see you later. We got the dog. The final link, along with Miles and the Mouse, in the get-you-into-a-fist-fight triumvirate. After a couple of drinks, this guy can't stop himself hitting on anything with a pulse, including the boyfriends and girlfriends of those biker dudes in the corner. Oh, and how about Samuel L. Jackson in a really loud bar? 
What, you say? Say what again? I dare you. I double dare you, motherfucker. Say what one more goddamn time. And finally, monkeys. Yes, monkeys. They're so cute and full of energy. You'd think they'd be the best drinking buddies ever. But the truth is, monkeys are ruthless thieves that simply can't be trusted around alcohol. If you don't believe me, go to YouTube and search for Drunk Monkeys Caribbean. You won't be disappointed. Here's a little snippet. This is the sleepy island of St. Kitts in the Caribbean. Three hundred years ago, vervet monkeys were brought here from West Africa along with slaves serving the rum industry. Escaped monkeys acquired a taste for alcohol by eating fermented sugarcane left in the fields. Today, they satisfy their thirst by raiding local bars. Summer's here, friends, and summer's the time for sipping on cool, refreshing cocktails made with the best ingredients. I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. Buy the finest spirits in the world to make craft cocktails at home, but if you use crap mixers, you're going to get crap drinks. Let's face it, whipping up cocktails at home can be a real pain in the ass, and an expensive pain in the ass at that. I always have time to go out and get fruits and veggies and squeeze them and juice them or I don't anyway, and that's why I am all about Fresh Victor. Fresh Victor is a line of all-natural, clean-label cocktail mixers that make the best drinks as conveniently and consistently as possible. All of the ingredients are fair trade source. There's no artificiality, none. And the bonus of a fresh mixer over a ready-made canned cocktail is not just the jump in quality and freshness, which is huge, but the fun of actually making yourself and your guests a kick-ass drink. And right now, Fresh Victor is offering a sweet summertime special exclusively for you listeners. What we're drinking with Dan Dunn. Simply go to FreshVictor.com, fill up your shopping cart with these awesome mixers. Get all the flavors, try them all. And at checkout, enter code WWD20, WWD20, to get 20% off your order. Don't hesitate. Now is the time to treat yourself to the very best mixers on the market. And that's Fresh Victor. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, R, R. Oh, it happened again. Whenever I randomly decide to perform the alphabet on this show, I always get stuck on those three R's. Guess it's because of my close personal relationship with Batiste Rum, known far and wide as the 3R Rum, because they practice regenerative agriculture, use renewable energy, and make responsible choices. The makers of Batiste Rum employ an eco 
eco-positive, solar-powered manufacturing process from beginning to end. It's the only known beverage alcohol in the world to have a climate-positive, natural production process without the purchase of carbon offsets. Batiste Rum is made from 100% pure, fresh cane juice, not molasses or sugar crystals. If you like your tequila 100% agave, then you'll like your rum 100% cane juice. It's an incredibly damn delicious rum to be enjoyed neatering cocktails. I got two great offer codes from Batiste for you. Go to BatisteRum.com. That's B-A-T-I-S-T-E-R-H-U-M.com. Fill up your cart. Enter code WWD15 at checkout to get 15% off all orders. And if you want to try their delicious reserve rum, and you should, enter code RESERVE to get 20% off. Folks, Batiste Rum is proof that great taste with true sustainability is not a goal for tomorrow, but a reality today. And that is as simple as ABC. Joining me now is a cocktails and spirits writer and speaker who's covered the craft cocktail renaissance for more than 15 years, contributing to more than 50 publications around the world, including Popular Science, Savour, Details, Whiskey Advocate, and Drinks International. With a focus on the nerdy side of mixology, he has studied everything from the history of carbonation to the science of clear ice cubes. He has been awarded International Cognac Writer of the Year by the Bureau National Interprofessional du Cognac and Best Cocktail Writer at Tales of the Cocktail Foundation Spirited Awards. And I just stole that bio from his brand new book. I lifted it from his book. It's called Doctors and Distillers, The Remarkable medicinal history of beer wine spirits and cocktails i am very excited to finally have on my show one of my my oldest compatriots from the uh, the drinking reportage profession camper english hi buddy what's up great to see you man and congrats on the new book just came out thank you i've read a significant amount of it it is a exhaustively researched book I was getting tired reading it, not because it was not, I was thinking about the amount of effort that went into writing this book. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, I I wrote a lot of it. I did the actual writing part in the scariest part of the pandemic. So I was, um, didn't have anything else to do at the time. And I had researched it for a couple of years, just sort of highlighting stuff in every book that I could find from liquor books to the history of medicine books and then some like science history books because I got to, had to fill in all like the alchemy stuff and all the stuff on uh, Louis Pasteur. And um, so, and I didn't want to use the same like quotes that everyone uses for drinking stuff, like for whiskey, you know, take it for snake bite, always carry a small snake uh, with you. Like that stuff that, um, I couldn't verify the quote anyway, but um, uh, I didn't want to write the same stuff from other books just all put together. And so I I went kind of deep on the research to to bring in new material. And so everybody knows what we're talking about here. Camper himself described it, the book as the, quote, interconnected history of alcohol and medicine. A little later, he says it's meant to give the reader an appreciation of alcohol's long and lush medicinal history so you you get into the weeds about almost everything that we're drinking now originally was used in some way as like a curative somehow right yeah absolutely everything pretty much unless it's like a a new liqueur from the 1980s that that came onto the market everything has a medicinal history from 
uh, beer was was used you, instead of water to drink it. It's like Gatorade of the pyramid building era. And wine was used to uh, infuse medicines to take it that way because you don't want to chew on a bunch of herbs. You want to put them in something that you drink. You don't want to drink the water because it's not safe. So you put it in wine instead. Distilled spirits uh, were created in the process of making medicines. It was not there was not a beverage intent for distilling uh, at the time. And uh, they came up with eau de vie and we're like, we did it, fam. We got the best. But wait, let me bring you back a little bit, though. You talk early on in the book, though, about a thing called the drunken monkey hypothesis. And this is before anybody was planning anything. Tell us a little bit about what that is. Sure. The drunken monkey hypothesis is basically trying to justify why humans consume alcohol by looking at uh, monkeys. And it's a, it's a kind of an evolutionary theory that monkeys, um, because you can smell, you know, fruit on the forest floor that's starting to rot a little bit, but ferment specifically and monkeys would have been able to smell that and then they would eat it. It's relatively safe because the alcohol kills germs um, they can find it and it, the alcohol has, it's packed with easily accessible calories. So it was full of good stuff. And the idea is that pr- humans were pre-adapted for uh, alcoholic beverages because our ancestors were eating r- rotting fruit off the forest floor. Well, and as I pointed out earlier in the show, that that's probably where those drunken monkeys in the Caribbean got their, their taste for it. Um, yes. One of the other things I've, really found was fascinating. We were talking about how these things came to be is the medicinal part. I I forget where it was in the book, but you mentioned sort of the old spoonful of sugar, you know, and they would put it in there into the alcohol to try to make it more palatable. And that was kind of the beginning of liqueur. Yeah, absolutely. Because a lot of medicinal ingredients, particularly for stomach ailments are bitter because bitter things signal to us as humans, this is poison. Don't eat that. And yet we persist. So, uh, the, the bitter herbs and botanicals help stimulate digestion, which is our body's way of saying like, get process it, get rid of it and get it out. But we just use that to our advantage as aperitifs and digestifs. And then the, the sugar, if we think of the five basic tastes on the, the tongue, there's uh, salt, salty, sweet, umami, um, uh, bitter and, Savory, savory. <laughs> I know them. Yeah, it's like sa- savory, sweet, s- salty, savory, savory, sweet, umami. Uh, umami is the same as savory. In and out um, burger. Right. And uh, Dairy Queen. Whiskey. Yeah, and whiskey. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But um, those, if we have some of those, um, are those basic tastes are sort of paired together. So if something's bitter and it's sweet, then they, they don't really cancel each other out, but they kind of do. It's sort of like how um, at a stage of ripeness in an apple, uh, it's going to be really gross tasting um, until it reaches a certain point of sweetness. So it's a sour and sweet together that tell us now it's ready to eat in that situation. So kind of similar to bitter, bitter and sweet. The research is really impressive. You talk about this Greek physician from ancient times named Galen. Am I saying that correctly? I think so. Actually, I haven't listened to the audiobook yet, so I'm going to learn how everything is pronounced for the first time. I, I read it in books. I don't know how, how it sounds, but Galen sounds right to me. So Galen was an extremely influential figure in terms of the development of what we now 
are buying at our local liquor store, right? Tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> well, he created the medicinal system that was used for um, almost 2000 years, really. And that's like the theory of the four humors that um, we all have fluids in our body and an excess of one or the other determines your, your health and that supposedly cause all diseases. It's totally, it's totally wrong. It's, it's, it's wacky, but um, the, based on that, they would prescribe different food and beverages to eat, to counteract them, or they would prescribe, you know, bleeding and stuff like that. Okay. But uh, that medicinal system really uh, set the path on how a lot of what we would call medicines were, were consumed back then. I mean, he, I, Galen, as far as I know, didn't really, you know, he wasn't a mixologist, but uh, yeah. he didn't make recommendations. Like if you're feeling phlegmatic, then eat black pepper, stuff like that. Well, one of the things that you, you touch on in the book, and we, I just talked about this. We did an episode of my show live from the townhouse down here in Venice. And we ended up talking a little bit about Guinness and you, you do get into that where Guinness up until very recently, with the, you know, the health benefit, Guinness is good for you. That was the that was one of their ad, ubiquitous ad slogans. And talk a little bit about how Guinness. I mean, they used to give it to pregnant women. They used to give it to. Uh, go ahead, a little bit of it. Yeah, for uh, yeah, Guinness was uh, considered to be high in iron, so it was sort of like an iron supplement, like you might take in your vitamin, or if you think about fortified milk, that's fortified with iron, and so. Guinness was considered to be healthy in the same way that we would think of fortified milk as being healthy. So specifically recommended for anything to do with the blood. If you bled a lot, have a Guinness. If you um, uh, have a baby, have a Guinness. Uh, breastfeeding uh, was particular. Breastfeeding mothers were always recommended to drink Guinness. And they really specified that beer in, in particular, um, considering it the the most healthy or beneficial. And I don't know, you know, the math on that as far as how it compares to anything else. But if uh, you gave blood in Ireland, it was traditional that you would receive a free pint of Guinness uh, and, and thank you for your service um, to, to also to replace the blood, which probably didn't do anything, but gave you a quicker buzz because of less blood to, to go around. And, Little things you just never really consider, like soda water, for instance, right? You know, like how did this, how did soda water end up being such a, but really it was because of the, the idea that these mineral, like mineral spa waters and stuff were considered healthy, right? And, and then eventually that leads to us drinking it. Yeah, for sure. They, people spent a lot of time on mineral water. That was a surprise uh, for me to learn in, in, in the research like hundreds of years of being like, well, Apollinaris spa is, is better for, you know, iron in the blood and Evian is better for something else. And there were guidebooks to Europe um, about the, the, all the different spas in the different areas. And, and you would go to one spa for one thing and another spa for another. But they particularly thought the fizzy spas were the most beneficial. And when they first created artificially carbonated water, they were like, we did it. We, we nailed this one water um, that is the most healthy. And now everyone gets to drink it at home. Um, this is going to be great for the, for the general population. The other one too, I, it's taken on this mythical quality and it's notorious was absinthe. 
but I was kind of fascinated. I am fascinated when I was reading your book. Did you talk a lot about how much absinthe was seen as a cure all for, you know, I, there's a part in here where it says, uh, you write, we've, we've already seen wormwood, wormwood infused into beer. John French commented in 1667 that wormwood, which is the main ingredient in, uh, it stops get wind, which was gas farting, uh, kills worms, hinders vomiting, provokes appetite, strengthens the stomach, gets you high. Like absinthe was the cure all for everything, right? Yeah. And that's in a, from a distillation book. Um, and because distillation books were medicine books as well, the, all the way into 1700 or so your book of distilled, um, spirits recipes were like, oh, and then you use this to treat the following conditions after, at the end of every recipe. So, uh, yeah, wormwood in particular was, had been used since, you know, the Greeks and Romans and probably millennia before that for a number of conditions, most notably, um, expelling, uh, internal parasites, um, for, from, from the body. And uh, at the time when the absinthe craze comes about, you know, what we hear about it today or what we think about it is all the negative effects. Absence makes you crazy. And uh, it uh, had to be um, you know, made illegal for a long time. But really, the reason people were drinking absinthe was because of its supposable, supposed um, health properties that the French soldiers in Africa took it um, to try to prevent malaria. And I kind of don't think it did anything for that, but also to prevent cholera, which it probably did because you put alcohol in germ-filled water, it's going to kill a lot of the germs. So it might've been helpful in that case. And the, the popularity of absinthe was from those soldiers coming back to, uh, to France and then wanting this nice soothing, cooling beverage that they remembered from their, their time on the front. And uh, that's what made absence popular. And then, then basically the wine people gave it a, a bad um, press reputation and, and ran them out of business. You do an interesting thing in the book. So you have a lot of cocktail recipes. So for instance, you, you would talk about a, there's an improved gin cocktail. And then you use that as the leaping, the jumping off point to sort of talk about what gin is, you know, uh, where it came from, which we've, we've talked about on this show before. It actually was invented. It's synonymous with Britain, but it was really invented by the Dutch. It was called Geneva. When did you get that idea that you're going to use, incorporate the cocktail recipes and then use those to expand about the medicinal qualities? Well, some of it was just, um, like, the book is for a lot of different readers, I hope. And uh, for some people, you know, I can't just reference the improved gym cocktail and hope that, you know, <laughs> that many people know about it. So I wanted to have things in there as a reference and also have them there to make people reflect. Okay, let's look at these ingredients in it. Oh, it's got maraschino liqueur. It's got absinthe. It's got, um, it's got gin and, and everything else in there, Geneva in this case. And to just continually think about, okay, everything in this cocktail has a medicinal history again, and every drink you hit that. But I didn't want it to be a cocktail-focused book, or you know that each chapter was about a cocktail. Although I had originally conceived the book that way, this you know light and fluffy book about like oh it's an old-fashioned. Well, the bitters are good for your stomach. But I ended up writing this epic thing uh, going through all of history instead. So that's, isn't that a funny how that works, man? You know, yeah. when it's I on brand for me when I wrote American <laughs> Wino. I originally sold that to Harper. There it is right there in the background. Look at that. I love it. Pander to me, please. Um, 
you know, I I pitched that to HarperCollins as an actual sort of wine guide book around the country. <laughs> and then, of course, it became a memoir about me trying to heal myself after my brother's death. It's it's a wonderful thing when you find the book later, when it when you think it's going to be one thing and then suddenly your brain goes somewhere else and you come up and what you've done here, I think sounds more interesting is more interesting to me than probably what your original idea is. Do you feel that way? Oh, Oh, for sure. Yeah. I'm, this is a book I'm really proud of. I think it's, you know, a a work, you know, like it is honestly, man, I mean this and you've not, you and I've known each other a long time and I'm not just blowing sunshine up your ass. I think it's a, it's really, not only is it, meticulously and exhaustively researched, but you, you have a really great style of writing. Your prose is great. And that's not always the case with everybody in our profession. <laughs> there's a not few, in, in the drink writing There's profession. like a handful. <laughs> it's like you, Wondrich, you know, Wayne Curtis, there's some Simonson. You, you really know how to, to, to turn a phrase, man. And, and, and it, it, it's not only is there so much great information in this book, but it's, it's well, it's delivered in uh, in a lively, entertaining style, too. Well, thank you very much. I had to cut out, you know, a lot of the poop jokes, but uh, there's still enough in there. That I, I, if you need <laughs> that, there's a ton in American Wino if you guys need this. And one of the things, you, you actually issue a disclaimer in this book, and you, you kind of touched on it, is you said, this is most definitely not a book of natural cures or recipes for booze-based remedies, but one about the inseparable history of alcohol and medicine. Um, you said, <laughs> this is great. If you need medicine, talk to your doctor. If you need a cocktail, see your local mixologist. So the point is, no matter what some resourceful publicists try to tell us now, you're never going to sell the idea that alcohol is is good for you. Now let's you know let's give up on that. Like it's uh, and even that one is better than the other necessarily is is ridiculous because the alcohol is there in, in every case. And so all these like oh tequila is healthier than whatever. Like no, it's it's absolutely not. <laughs> like and and if it was, it would be to such an insignificant extent compared to uh, just the the alcohol that's in there in the first place. It's really silly to argue that point. Like you know if you enjoy drinking have some drinks. Um, if you want to get healthy, don't make choices based on that. Like let it be, let it be recreation and let medicine be medicine. You're a man of science. I know this. That's, I, yeah. That's why I wore, the, I wore this shirt for you because I know how much you appreciate. See, this is one of our great moments in history when you know, we went to the moon. So I, let me see. There, get that. There you go. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know what I happen to be wearing today? This is my office dress shirt. <laughs> that, we're undressing now here we go guy let me see what you got i gotta lower it down i got want whoa there it is see, the we, scientific method and yeah, we did not plan this out in case you guys are thinking this <laughs> matchy matchy i gotta ask you because you know one i know one of your great passions almost to a point where i've been concerned about you in the past i've almost written me are you okay is you really are into ice yeah <laughs> Where where did that, that come, come from? Where did that happen? I mean, obviously from the drinks, covering drinks, and, but I don't know anybody that is into cocktail ice and ice more than you. Yeah, well, <laughs> I spent some time on it, researching it. I wanted to disprove all the legend, urban legends about making clear ice at home. That's how it all started. And I did a whole bunch of experiments and I figured out the easy way to make clear ice at home. 
What is the simple way to make clear ice? So the simple way to make clear ice is to, we call it directional freezing, which means rather than like an ice cube that freezes from the outside in towards the center, and that's where it pushes, because uh, ice wants to be clear, and it pushes all the trapped um, air and any impurities like minerals into the middle of the cube. So what we do instead is you take a hard-sided uh, picnic cooler, uh, fill it with water, leave the top, throw away the top, and just stick that in your freezer. So now what's happening, rather than freezing from the outside to the inside, it's freezing only from the top to the bottom because of that insulation on all the other side. So it's your ice is 100% clear all the way to the last like 25 or 30% uh, of that block that you're making. And then you just cut it. And then you can cut it off or don't let it freeze that far. And you have only clear ice. It's like a slab of clear ice until the bottom because it's not like clear, cloudy, clear, cloudy. It's only clear and then it's cloudy. And so what I do at home is I put water in my cooler, put it in the freezer for two days and then dump it out, have just a slab of clear ice. And then you get to use knives and stuff and cut it up, which is also fun. Wow. I got to do that. I never knew. I never knew how to make, I, I don't think I cared enough either. I'm just like, yeah, all <laughs> yeah, right, I, put the fucking ice in there. Um, I care enough for both of us. <laughs> so the book is on sale now. Uh, everywhere books are sold, I would imagine. I don't think there's any play. They're not keeping it out. It's called Doctors and Distillers, The Remarkable Medicinal History of Beer, Wine, and Spirits and Cocktails. If you had to give us, beyond what we've already talked about, like one or two other just things that are really, really fascinating in the book, what would you say? Uh, root beer ingredients were thought to be the sure cure for syphilis. Root beer? <laughs> yep. Sassafras and sarsaparilla. Uh, those were thought they were going to cure syphilis because syphilis comes from this continent, brought it back to Europe. And so there was a rush on sassafras and sarsaparilla to try to cure all the syphilis that was, was happening in Europe. Doesn't, doesn't work. Turns out. <laughs> That's so crazy, man, because a couple of years ago I was in, I met this woman in France. Now it's making sense. And we got done, you know, and she said, here, have some A&W root beer. And I was like, why? She's like, just trust me, just drink as much of this shit as you can. And now I probably realize, oh, she was trying to tell me something. It's so gross. I'm cutting that out too. No, I won't. <laughs> All right. So that, that was wrong. What else we got? Uh, we got, well, I think a lot, a lot of people know that the, the gin and tonic, the tonic water was a cure for malaria. The quinine in the tonic, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, was a cure for malaria and it was effective and it did work and it changed the entire makeup of planet earth, this, this medicine to get rid of malaria. And then even in the 1950s, there was enough quinine in the tonic water still that cocktail books said, be careful, don't drink too many of these because you'll get this, basically it's a quinine poisoning from the tonic water. Uh, and since then, clearly it, the amount has been reduced uh, for, for safety, but it was medicinal that late. Well, I'm going to say this and, and by no means, again, I am not a scientist, nor am I a doctor or an epidemiologist or any of these things. So I want everybody out there to take what I'm saying with a, in a giant grain of skepticism, but it is a theory that I have here, Camper, is I hold up here as a lot of people did, not here, but at home, not at my home, but their homes during COVID. And I pretty much drank every day. 
you know, at least during the, the early parts of COVID, because like, what else am I going to do? And it's not like I was drinking excessively, but it's like, I'll have some wine. I'll have it because who fucking cares? Where am I going? Am I going anywhere? I got nothing yeah, to do. What with time it. is it? What day is it? Yeah. And I felt I never got sick. I never had it. So I'm wondering, just wondering, is there something to it? <laughs> I want you to give me license yeah. to drink every day. You're like, no, no, there's nothing. No, the thing to it is that you weren't interacting with other people who were spreading their germs to you. <laughs> I, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> sorry, it sorry to ruin your fun. sense. <laughs> well, listen, man, I love seeing you. And by the way, when this episode drops, I will probably be hanging out with Camper at that, maybe the moment this episode, we, we're going to be down in New Orleans together for the annual Tales of the Cocktail Festival for my first time back since 2018. Uh, were you there in 19 or no? I was. I was there. Yeah, that was the last, the last one. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, it's going to be fun to be down there. You're going to be selling the books down there, doing some signings. I am going to be signing at the little bookstore they put in the hotel. I'm giving one talk on uh, early distillation books. So stuff like that 1600s book about uh, Wormwood. That's uh, that's all in there. And then, of course, you and I will need to go to the old absinthe house in order to keep ourselves safe and healthy. That's right. <laughs> well, uh, Doctors and Distillers by Camper English is on sale now. I highly recommend it. He's one of the best there has ever been at, at covering our the adult beverages that we love. And this book is really just full of so much great information. I want to check it out. Camper, I uh, look forward to partying with you in... Uh, responsibly of course in in new orleans very soon i'll see you in a few days (laughs) it's over johnny it's over nothing is over with all due respect to the great johnny rambo it actually is over this is the end of the show i want to thank camper english for being on i want to thank you for being here remind you to follow me at the imbiber on instagram and twitter at wwd underscore podcast i'm off to new orleans for tales of the cocktail be a full report on the next episode and then coming up shortly in the next few weeks we got glenn howerton from it's always sunny in philadelphia jackie the joke man martling my old pal from the howard stern show is going to be coming on here with me we got black rebel motorcycle club on tap soon so much fun so much fun now take me out of here 